Hello class, this is your Professor Debbie and welcome to True Crime University. How's everybody today? It's the middle of the afternoon. I don't usually record at this time because of noise from outside. I usually do my recording like between midnight and 6 a.m. when it's quietest because I have enough audio issues, but I thought I'd just get a little head start and introduce everybody to today's topic. As I'm sure you've read the title or the show notes, we're doing something totally different today and we're going to talk about a heist. And this heist, of course, as you've probably read, occurred at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Art Museum in Boston. And it's famous for being the biggest art heist so far, as I know of. One of the biggest heists, you know, in terms of um, financial gain, and also that it's never been solved. And it's a very fascinating story. I am going to make it family friendly. I'm going to turn off my potty mouth. So gather the family around for a fun-filled discussion on this art heist. And we're also going to talk a little bit about who Isabella Stort Gardner was, the museum itself. I don't think you can fully appreciate the um, impact of this heist and what it did to the museum and to the art community, unless you know a little bit about art and the things that were stolen. And I am into art. I do paintings. Um, I haven't painted for a while, but I am, I want to say, an amateur painter. I never sold any, so I guess I would be, I would be an amateur painter. I don't know if I could say if I'm a good painter or not. I guess that depends on who you ask. But I'm really interested in art and art history. So when I found out the works that were stolen from the museum, I wanted to find out more about them. And what I decided to do is instead of boring yuns with a discussion of these particular artworks, I'm going to briefly mention what they were. And then at the end of the episode, if you're interested and you want to hang around, I will go more into depth about these works that are stolen, that are, are still missing, and why they were important, who painted them, etc. My mouth is pretty well healed, so Yins shouldn't have any problem understanding me, other than the usual Pittsburgh accent, which I know can be problematic. But before we talk about the museum and the heist, I want to tell you a little bit about Isabella Stort Gardner and who she was and why she was important. She was born in New York City on April 14th of 1840 into a rich family. She went to a private school in New York City and a finishing school abroad. I'm not really sure what a finishing school is. I think it's where you learn like manners and stuff. And we don't have things like that around where I grew up. When she was in Paris, she went to school with a woman named Julia Gardner, who introduced her to her brother, John, also known as Jack. And she fell in love with Jack. And in 1860, they got married. Isabella and Jack moved to New York City for a while. And then they moved to his hometown of Boston. They lived at a house on Beacon Street, in case you're not familiar with Boston. Um, I've been there. It's a really awesome city, really fascinating and full of historical, historically important 
places. And the house was actually a wedding gift from Isabella's dad. And if I ever got married, I would be happy if my dad would give me like a blender or something. And she got a house. So uh, this is the type of money these people had. They had a son who they called Jack the Third, but sadly he died of pneumonia when he was less than two years old. So she was depressed, maybe possibly um, postpartum depression. There's no way to know. But on the advice of a friend, they said, uh, you know, these people had the money too. So they're like, well, why don't you go on a trip? That'll cheer you up. So in 1867, they went on a long trip to Europe and Russia and Egypt and the Middle East. And it was in all of these exotic places that Isabella started keeping detailed journals of the places she went to, things she saw. And apparently she became interested in art. And she was like me in that she was attracted to intelligent people, intelligent discussions. And she lived in the perfect place. Boston was near Cambridge, which has very educated people because of the schools that are, that are there, Harvard, MIT, and so forth. And her and her husband joined something called the Dante Society, and it, it was a group that appreciated, was, was like sort of a fan club of the Italian poet Dante. She started collecting rare books and manuscripts starting with, because like me, she was a fan of Dante. So she started with early editions of his work, and she actually had a 1487 copy of the Divine Comedy. And I can't even imagine. I saw a picture of it, and I just cannot even fathom owning a copy of this. This is like totally mind-blowing. And even just to see one, you know, in person would be like, oh my god, that's... Anyway, she must have really had a lot of money to be able to do stuff like this. So in 1884, they went to Venice, Italy, and they visited a place called the, I think I'm going to say this right, Palazzo Barbero. And it was owned by a couple of Bostonians, Daniel and Ariana Curtis. And they were all like her and her husband, smart people who like to talk about intelligent things. So this building became a major source of inspiration for the museum. If you look at pictures of the museum, which, of which I have a few, not so much the outside of it nowadays, but like the courtyard, the inner courtyard of it, it's designed to look like an Italian palace. And it does. It really does. She also met the expatriates, John Singer Sargent and James Whistler, both of, if you don't recognize their names, they're famous American painters. And she befriended a dude named Ralph Curtis, who became a major source of inspiration for her museum. In 1886, she met a Harvard art student named Bernard Berenson, and he was Obviously, he's a Harvard art student, so he knows quite a bit about art, and he traveled also. So what she did was she gave him some money, and she said, go get me some nice art. So he went to Florence and bought, like, legitimate art that came from the Italian Renaissance. He got her Rembrandt self-portrait, which is, if you don't know anything about art, just take my word for it. It's a very, very famous painting. He got her Titian's The Rape of Europa, which... 
is still in her museum and it is the most valuable painting in the museum. So in 1898, Jack Gardner, Isabella's husband, died of a stroke. And of course, she found herself alone. And I imagine, as you would be if your spouse dies, depressed, kind of thinking, okay, what do I do now? But she had a lot of money and a lot of art. So she got the idea of starting a museum to share her art with everybody. She bought a plot of land in what they call the Fens area of Boston. And a Fen, if you don't know, is a, a swampy or boggy area. And I have a picture to show you of what it looked like when it was first built. And it looks absolutely nothing like it does now. Now it looks like it's just any old office building in the middle of a busy city street. And back then it looked like marshland or, or a swamp. She found a local architect named Willard Sears to design the museum. And remember I told you that she wanted it to look like an Italian palace. And I, I think I already told you that from the outside there's really nothing spectacular about the building. It just looks like any old office building, but that's not what the building originally looked like. When you get inside what they call the indoor courtyard, you can see the facade of the original architecture, which really does look like an Italian palace, and it's really beautiful. So construction began in 1899. It was finished in 1901. Isabel herself moved into the fourth floor of the museum, which was her living quarters. She, so she literally made the museum her home. She personally arranged the art in all of galleries on the first, second, and third floors. It reminds me of um, Walt Disney when he built Disneyland, how he had an apartment in uh, one of the buildings there. I, I don't know which one it was, but can you think of a cooler place to live than an apartment in an amusement park. I personally can't, but anyway. So from all these trips around the world and all this collecting, she had paintings and tapestries and statues and furniture and manuscripts and rare books, and she still continued to collect art. The, the museum officially opened January 1st of 1903, and to celebrate, there was a concert by the Boston Symphony Orchestra, which is a, is a very prestigious orchestra. It was one of the first private art collections in the United States. And over the next 20 years, she filled it with visual and performance artists, like concerts, lectures, exhibitions. She encouraged artists to make themselves at home there. If she happened to know an artist, which she did, um, she would say, hey, you know, you can come hang out at my museum and paint there. John Singer Sargent, who I previously mentioned, a famous American artist, he painted in what was called the Gothic Room. And each one of her rooms had a theme. I guess most museums do, really. But there, and I have a diagram of them on my social media. There's like the Dutch room, which you could probably guess what's in there. And I think she had a Chinese or an Asian room. And I think it goes without saying that the name of the room housed art of a certain type or from a certain place. She had a dancer named Ruth Saint-Denis performed and also the famous Australian opera singer Nellie Melba. She sang from the balcony of the Dutch room. Isabella died in 1924. 
and this is very important. It might not sound like a big deal, but it will become later on. So I'll repeat it again to you. In her will, she stipulated that nothing in her gallery be changed at all. No items were to be acquired or sold. Now, her collection has 7,500 works of art, such as silver, ceramics, painting, sculpture, furniture, and textiles, 1,500 rare books, 7,000 archival objects from ancient Rome, medieval Europe, Renaissance, Italy, Asia, the Islamic world, 19th century France and America. And what an archival object is, is it means it's something that's like somewhere in the museum that's not displayed. It's just like they have it, but it's not out on display. And that is an incredible amount of art. The museum still has the performances, like the concerts and the dancers and stuff like that. They just don't have material art that's sitting around. They have like live art. They have something called the Dorothy McGee Greenhouse, which has plants, flowers, things like that. Interior and exterior gardens. And in the courtyard I mentioned, the one that looks like the Italian palace, they have nine different seasonal displays which rotate with the seasons. And it wasn't very hard to find. They have a website. If you go on, they'll tell you exactly what month they have what kind of exhibit. And they have pictures. And right now, which is August, they have bellflowers, which are really cool. I like flowers. And it reminds me of um, the Bellagio in in, uh, Las Vegas. They have a, I think it's also a courtyard. I was in there and I took pictures. And they also have very similar to this, decorations and plants and flowers that vary by the uh, time of year. And at the time I went, it was like early, it was like the end of January, beginning of February. Uh, Like Chinese New Year, they had a Chinese thing. And it it was really, really cool. So just, just to give you an idea of something, something similar. I did want to tell you about the museum in order to set the scene for what's going to come up. And of course, we know that that's the heist. So in 1981, which was nine years before the heist, an FBI agent went to the director of security at the museum, and he said that word was that a gangster named Louis Royce had been casing the museum. And he said that this Lewis Royce character has way too much information about the museum and the security. And the agent said either somebody is giving out information or you have a tapped resource, like a leak. So whatever it is, you better fix it. He said that it very well could be somebody, an insider, like somebody who works at the museum or was on the board of directors who was friendly with organized crime or maybe owed some kind of debt to organized crime and that might not be as outlandish as it sounds boston from what i've read is a city that's like inundated by the irish and italian mafia and it's said that they have their fingers in everything so you know we'll we'll talk about that later but i just wanted to let you know that early on way early on before this heist occurred the fbi knew that crooks were sniffing at the museum 
and they tried to warn them. So the board of directors unfortunately didn't take this seriously enough. In 1989, which was now a year before the heist, they had a guy named Steve Keller with Steve Keller Associates. He was a security consultant. He did a, a walkthrough, a consultation with the museum, and he said, okay, have some security, but it's really not very good. And if I were you, I would beef it up. Well, they didn't because they, again, they said that they couldn't afford it. Their security system was pretty bad. They had some video surveillance, but for some reason they only had it pointing outside. They had motion detectors, and they also, if you can believe this, didn't have any insurance. Uh, that's right, no insurance. So if they got robbed, they were SOL. And the reason that they had no insurance, they did have an explanation for this. I guess they felt stupid or like they should explain. They said that their budget was so that they couldn't afford insurance or, or afford coverage of their exhibits. And the other thing that if somebody did take this stuff, that it's priceless. You can't really put a price tag on it, which I guess that makes sense. Now, I, I think I already mentioned this was the largest single property theft in the world. And according to who you want to believe, it's still technically unsolved. But it's one of those cases where it's like you think you know who did it, but it's just considered unsolved. And we're going to get into that later on. Don't worry, I won't leave you hanging. But I do like to tease a little bit. So, to set the scene, it's Boston and it's March 17th, 1990, which is, of course, St. Patrick's Day. And as you may imagine, having a large number of Irish people in their population, St. Patrick's Day is a big deal in Boston. So there were all kinds of people out all night living it up, partying. Usually at the museum, there were two security guards who would work the overnight shift. And let me introduce you to them right now. I'm just going to call them by their first names because, I mean, they're out there. Their last names are out there. You know, they're available. But personally, I think they've been dragged through the mud enough. So I'm just going to call them Rick and Randy. Rick was 23. Randy was 25. This would be Randy's first overnight shift and his first shift working with Rick. So just, you know, keep that in mind. Now, about 12.30 that morning, the side door to the museum is on a street called Palace Street. Remember, it looks like a palace. And there were some, I guess you would call them revelers, a young man and young woman. And they said that they saw distinctly that they were um, not like falling down drunk or out of their mind or anything. They clearly saw what they described as a Dodge Daytona with two men sitting in it, just sitting there. And one of them said that they actually made eye contact with one of them. And what's what was notable about these two men is that they had on Boston police uniforms. And they thought, well, they must be just, you know, in an undercover car. Didn't think much of it. Probably out here patrolling the streets because, you know, it's St. Patrick's Day. In case people get out of hand. Nothing out of the ordinary. So at 12.54 on March 18th, a fire alarm in the museum goes off on the third floor. And Rick the guard went to check it and found that 
there was no smoke or anything like that. I figured, well, it's a fire, it's a false alarm, shut it off. Now, whether or not that has anything to do with a heist is a mystery that we will probably never have the answer to. You know, I, I well, maybe you don't know, but I used to be a volunteer firefighter. Probably 80% of our calls were responding to, to false alarms. Um, false alarms happened all the time, but some places more than, uh, more than others. So it could have very well been just a false alarm, a short circuit in the, you know, their alarm system it has absolutely nothing to do with the heist. And I'm kind of inclined to think that way because from what everything that I've read about the heist, even if somehow somebody did figure out a way to trigger trigger a false fire alarm at that time, I don't see what that would have accomplished. It doesn't fit in anywhere. Now, the next notable occurrence, I don't have the exact time on this, but it, it's um, around this time. It, it's before the heist and after the, the fire alarm. Rick, the security guard, opened the side door for like a minute or two and then shut it. So just keep that in mind. And that, that was picked up by the camera. Like I told you, they did have, they had four cameras and they were all on doors. So he opens the door for about a minute. He just kind of looks out the door, then he closes it. And he later said that this was part of his regular security routine to make sure the door was locked. The security people at the museum said, no, that wasn't part of the routine. We have no idea why he did that. He had no reason to do that, but just something to keep in mind. Now let, let's talk a little about Rick because he is, um, a major player in this drama. I told you he was the younger of the two security guards. He was 23. And he's what I would call a colorful character. I have some pictures of him. He looks like he belongs in an 80s hairband. You know, if if you're too young to know what an 80s hairband is, oh my god, this makes me feel old, but think about Motley Crue, Poison, and Cinderella. It's dudes who sang usually like metal or rock, and they would get the curling iron and the gel and the spray, and their hair was huge, hence the word hairband, right? So Rick was in a band. It was called Ukiah. He played the trombone, and I don't think he played the trombone in Ukiah because I did see like a, a real short video clip of him in this band, and it was it was like metal, you know, like that type of music, and it looked like he was playing either a guitar or a bass, and I don't, I can't tell the difference. I'm not musically inclined. I don't like that kind of music, but he was like a rocker. And he had really long hair, like longer than mine. Like, well, you don't know how long mine is, but like, um, just, just trust me when I say really long and curly. Like he totally looked right at home in a hairband. And even today, we're going we're gonna to talk about him a little bit later, like what he's up to now. And I have a picture of what he looks like today. He still has the hair, but he was a self-admitted stoner. Do you know what a stoner is? Somebody who smokes marijuana. And he admitted to coming to work either drunk or high. And I guess I, well, I don't want to say I can't blame him, but that had to be an extremely boring job. Just, he usually worked the midnight shift. And I guess to, um, you know, he, he wasn't like Chris Dunch, who 
was doing surgery and that would be really bad. But he was just sitting there mainly doing nothing when he wasn't going on rounds, just, just checking checking the museum out. He would take some um, recreation with him, if you know what I mean. Like a drink or some weed or some even admitted LSD. At the time of the robbery, he had put in his two-week notice that he was going to quit. And he said that it was because, like I told you, he mainly had this midnight shift and it interfered with his band performances, which makes sense. That's reasonable. And supposedly he went around planning about how much he hated this job and about how bad the security was there. And um, I thought, okay, he was 23. When I was 23, I was a probation officer. So, but I tried to think of something that was uh, comparable. When I was 20, I was in college. And when I had this horrible, and I'm not just yapping this, trying to make a point, so hang with me. I had this horrible job. And I worked at a clothes store at the mall near, near where I went to college. And what I did was basically nothing. I walked around holding the uh, fitting room keys, and if somebody started looking at something, I was supposed to ask them, can I help you, or do you need any help? But of course, they always said no, because, I mean, they're just looking at clothes. Probably like, Le leave me alone. And I hated this job so much. It was so boring. I had absolutely no interest in selling clothes. Like, if, if somebody came in and they bought clothes or they didn't buy clothes, I could have cared less. I mean, these clothes to me were nothing. Um, I totally did not care how well this store did financially, um, if a lot of people came in. And I have a feeling that this is how Rick felt. He was at this job where he was so bored. And even though he works with priceless works of art, he doesn't care about them. Because, I mean, not that he's a a bad guy. You know, he's just there to get paid. And I guess to, to stretch this out a little bit more, if somebody came in and held up the clothes store that I worked at, um, I would be nervous for my own self. But as far as what happened to the clothes or the money, I could not give a crap. I don't care because it's not mine. And well, I think he had this attitude also. And just keep this in mind because it, it's going to come up later. So that's my story about my crappy job. And I'm sure everybody out there has a crappy job story or probably more than one. And yeah, I did complain about it, about how much I hated it and how boring it was. I don't know what the security there was like. I mean, it was at a mall. But imagine me, just follow my line of thinking here. We know he was in a band and he worked at a lot of bars because that's where bands play. And you talk, and if you're drinking, you know how people, drunk people get like loud and they just yell. And I can just see him, I'm not saying he did, I'm just saying I can picture this. He's at a bar, he's drinking, and he's he's like, oh man, I I hate that place that I work at, at the Isabella Historic Gardening Museum. It is so lame and boring, and their security system totally sucks. It is so bad. Like, anybody could come in and rob the joint. And he's maybe saying this out of public, maybe at a bar, and somebody's ears perk up. Like, hmm, that's interesting. And, you know, they tell somebody else, and they tell somebody else, and this information gets into the hands of the wrong people. Okay? You see where I'm going with this? That's my thought. So, at 1.24 a.m., 
and we know this because these are all recorded the buzzer rings and and here's how you had to get into to the museum this is really important they had what they call a man trap style door they don't have it anymore but they had one door you had to buzz the security guard we get get on the intercom and say yes who is it or whatever you would say oh this is such and such they would buzz you through one door then you were in another little space okay then they had to buzz you through the second door and like if you were caught between the two doors you were literally like a rat in a cage if you were suspicious in any way they could just leave you there literally until they felt like letting you out the idea was until if it was somebody suspicious put them in and call the police and there's your suspicious person trapped between two doors okay so these people dressed as cops had to make it between two doors keep that in mind they come in and okay rick is standing behind the counter and there's a panic button there you know what a panic button is it's like in banks and places like that well museums and if you press it it'll let the police know that oh somebody's in trouble at the museum or the bank or whatever this was the only one in the place the other security guard, Randy, was doing rounds. That's where you walk around a museum with a flashlight and check on everything. Notice how I said with a flashlight because all the lights are off. The place is dark. And again, this is important to know. You can't find your way around without a flashlight. So when they buzzed the door, Rick said, who is it or whatever. They said, this is Boston police. We are coming to investigate a disturbance in the museum. And Rick thinks, oh, the police are here to investigate something. Well, okay, that sounds legitimate. Theoretically, or according to the rules, he wasn't supposed to let them in, but he did. Okay, and you can't blame him because they said they were the police and they had Boston police uniforms on. So they come in and one of them said to him, hey, you look familiar. I think maybe we have a warrant out for you. Come over here and, and show us your ID. So Rick leaves the area behind the counter, therefore leaving the only panic button that he had access to. This is important. Goes over to the cops or the so-called cops. By this time, he has noticed that they both have funny looking mustaches on and just as it dawns on him that they're fake mustaches they kind of do the police thing where they put them up against the wall and they handcuff them and before this they said is there anybody else here with you he said yeah my partner's here they said we'll call him down here so that he calls Randy on the radio said, hey, come down, the police are here, or whatever he said. So just as Randy comes down, the other so-called cop handcuffs him too. When they're both handcuffed, the cops say to them, gentlemen, this is a robbery. And Rick did very few interviews. You can't blame him. But he did do one, and I have a clip of him here on the news saying, it's a very short clip, but he, he basically tells you in his own words what happened. Come in. Uh, clock in, there would be two guards. Rick was one of the night watchmen on duty the night of the crime. Cops rang the doorbell. <laughs> they said, Boston police, we got a report of a disturbance on the premises. So I buzzed them in. The cop that was dealing with me turned to me and said, don't I know you? Don't I recognize you? I think there's a warrant out for your arrest. Can you step out from behind the desk? He steps away from the security desk and away from the panic button, his only way to contact the outside world. 
his only way to prevent what was about to happen. In a matter of minutes, the two thieves had both night watchmen completely under their control. He finished cuffing me and he cuffed my partner and very dramatically said, gentlemen, this is a robbery. The thieves lead Rick and his partner down to the basement to different areas. It all happened so fast, he never had a chance to hit the one panic button by the guard desk. He knew no one was coming to help. Did the thieves know that as well? It appears they did, since they were in no rush to get out. So, Rick and Randy are handcuffed, and they lead them to the basement, and they sit them separately. They sit Rick on a, they say it's a workbench, but in the picture you can't really tell what it is. And they handcuff Randy to a pipe. They also put duct tape around their faces. There's only that I found uh, a picture of Rick duct tape. And you can look at it. It's in my social media. Um, if your purpose is to keep somebody quiet, um, it's not really covering his mouth. So it is kind of strange. And notice how I said they led them to the basement. They didn't say, okay, where's the basement? They just took them there. Is in like, they already knew where it was. So then... Once Rick and Randy are out of the way, they begin their 81-minute robbery. And if you're thinking, wow, 81 minutes, isn't that a long time for a robbery? Yes, it is. It is an extremely long time for a robbery or a heist. Anything over 10 minutes is said to be long. And this is just another clue to tell you that the thieves were comfortable in the museum and that they knew that the police were not going to come. That's another thing to keep in mind. Now, fortunately, we know in detail, almost step by step, their movements. And that's from the motion detectors. I have a, in my social media again, if you want to follow along with this, if you're like me and you like to see things like picture this, visualize what's happening while I describe it, you can do so. As soon as they left the basement, they went to the second floor. They turn right into what's called the Dutch room. And as you can kind of guess, the Dutch room held works by famous Dutch artists like Rembrandt. They took six paintings in the Dutch room, or well, they took six works of art in the Dutch room. The first thing they went for was a big Rembrandt called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And I told you that I wasn't going to bore you with the details of the art. That I was going to put that at the end in case you wanted to listen to it. But I do have to tell you a small detail about this painting, which will become evident as to why. The Storm on the Sea of Galilee was Rembrandt's only seascape. And it, it is cool. It's a, a boat being tossed about on a stormy sea. And it has a picture of Jesus on there and I guess his followers or whatever, some other people. And they're all looking, uh, I guess, forwards or except for one person in the painting. And that's Rembrandt himself. He actually painted himself into the painting, which he'd never done before. And if you look at the painting, and it's again, it's on my social media, you can see that one of the faces 
is turned out looking at you. And that's Rembrandt. So people who would come to the museum, you know how they have um, like an exhibit, a thing, whether it's a, a work of art or, or a historical thing, and then they'll have a sign next to it telling you what it is. Well, everybody, like I'm sure I would, and probably you would, wanted to see this for themselves. What they would do was they had a habit of stepping too close to the painting to get a look at Rembrandt. And there was a motion detector alarm. Not the kind, not the sensors, not the ones that are tracking the thieves through the museum because those don't make any noise. But this one did. And if you would step too close to the painting, it would like screech, like ee, like saying, back off. You know, you're too close to the painting. Well, that's what they did when the thieves went to take it off the wall. So what they did was they just stepped on it and smashed it. They're like, screw that thing. So this was the first thing they took. It was big. And they put it down on the floor. And the other things that they took in that room were landscape with an obelisk, a lady and gentleman in black, also by Rembrandt, a self-portrait of Rembrandt, which was relatively small. It was one of his early works, more like a sketch, and a work called The Concert by Vermeer. And Anne Hawley, who's the museum, who was for a long time the director of the museum, and, and she was at the time, she was really, really upset about this one because it was like her favorite. It was one of only 36 Vermeers in existence, like that he ever painted. And it still remains the most valuable stolen painting in the world. The other thing they took from that room was a Chinese bronze goo. G-U, and that means a vase. It was just like a, a vase. It was sitting on a table. It came from the 12th century, but supposedly it wasn't really all that valuable. And supposedly it took a lot of force to get this thing off of the table because it was somehow anchored on. And the experts would say that they couldn't figure out what was so attractive about this thing, that they took so much time and effort trying to get it off the table because it wasn't worth that much money. So at 1.51 a.m., one of the thieves left the Dutch room, passed through the early Italian Renaissance room and the Raphael room, both of which held extremely valuable paintings. So if they're there to go where the money is, they're literally walking right past it. He goes right for the short gallery, and he takes six things from there. A bronze eagle finial, which I'll talk about in more detail later. But a finial, in case you don't know, is a, like on the top of a flagpole, like a decorative thing. This one was from Napoleon's army, so that's why it was so special. All of the other things he took were by the artist Degas, and you probably know Degas. He was French, or you probably know his work. He's the one who painted all the paintings of ballet dancers, but he didn't only paint ballet dancers. The thief took three programs by Degas, and they were called Programs for an Artiste Soiree. He took three drawings of mounted jockeys by Degas, and he took a work called Cortege au Environ de Florence by Degas. Also a work called La Sortie de Passage, again, a day gone. The second thief returned to the Dutch room, then 
back to the short gallery. I guess they're probably getting all their stuff that they want and what they did. The works were too big in the frames to take out of the museum as they were, so they had to get them out of the frames. And in the uh, crime scene photo, you can see the, the frames lying around the floor and the broken glass everywhere. They would smash them on the floor. This was marble floor. And they used a, what everybody thinks is a box cutter to cut them out of, from the back of the painting to cut the actual painting out of its frame. And keep in mind, these are not the consistency of posters, or they're not soft. They're not something that can be rolled up. Paintings from those days were a canvas that was um, pretty thick and hard and, and could not be rolled up. So that's why they took them out of whatever type of frame they were in to get them into their car. And we do know that they made two trips to the car to get all their loot into it. And the museum worker said they didn't really understand that the one, the smaller Rembrandt self-portrait, it was screwed to the wall. And they, they said they didn't, don't know why they took the time, and it was quite a, a bit of time, to stand there and unscrew this from the wall when it wasn't that valuable. And I have my, my ideas about that I'll talk about later. So at 2.01 a.m., they went down to the blue room on the first floor, and the blue room is blue, and they take a Manet painting called Shea Tortoni. And there's a very big mystery behind this because supposedly, okay, for one thing, those motion sensor things that have been tracking their, their movements, there weren't any in the blue room. But they were on the two hallways that kind of sandwiched the blue room. But none of these went off. So how they knew that it was 2.01 when they took Shea Tortoni, I really do not understand that point. If anybody knows, let me know because that's one thing that I can't figure out. So the mystery is how did they get this painting out of this room and no alarms went off? And there's all kinds of conspiracy and theories within the theories of who did the heist. So it's like a mystery within a mystery. And we're, we're, we're going to get back to that later. But at 2.11, they went down and checked the guards just to make sure they're there. And strangely, and I don't think it was Rick, I think it was Randy, the older guard, one of the thieves said to him, are you comfortable? Are your handcuffs too tight? And he said yes, and he loosened his handcuffs. And you don't see that too often in heists and robberies and, and so forth. Before they left them, the thieves said to Rick and Randy, we've seen your IDs. We know where you live. If you don't keep quiet, we'll kill you. But if you're good boys and keep your mouth shut in about a year, you'll get a little present or reward. I'm not sure what their exact words were. But believe it or not, they never got any kind of reward from the thieves. So before they left, now they went into the security director's office. They took the surveillance tape of the, uh, you know, the video of them coming in the door. It was a VHS tape with the date on it. They took it out of the VCR, and there was a dot matrix printer in the uh, 80s and 90s. They had these things called, kind of printers called dot matrix, and they were really big, and they were 
they took forever to print and they were really irritating and they made this like scree that's my dot matrix imitation that's what they sounded like and this printer was connected to the alarm system and you can see this on my social media what it was doing it, it was busy it was busy printing out someone has tripped the alarm in the dutch room go investigate the dutch room immediately all all the way down the the papers it was saying you know alarm tripped in dutch room in dutch room in short gallery short gallery so the thieves took this piece of paper or i think it was more than one took it with them and again at my point they had to know where to go to get that then they took the frame from Shay Tortoni and they left it on the seat the chair of the guard station now everybody thinks that's meant to give a message and can you guess what the message is I think everybody kind of concurs that it, it's like screw you cute huh so strangely and this is another mystery here there was no movement that was recorded for the next 40 minutes. So what were they doing at that time? Nobody knows, really. So between 2.41 and 2.44, the door opens and closes, and that's them going, making their two trips to the car with their loop. At the next event is at 6.45 in the morning, and the two day security guards come to relieve Rick and Randy. So they buzz to be let in, and there's no answer. And they're like, okay, there's supposed to be two dudes here. Where are they? They call their boss, the security, you know, head of security. And he comes to the museum. He has a key, lets them in to another, not the side entrance that you have to buzz in that, that the thieves got into, but another entrance. And right away, they know something's wrong. They see all the frames everywhere and the broken glass. And they're like, oh, crap we've been robbed so they called the police a little bit of trivia when the director of security called police his exact words were quote i'm calling from the gardner museum we've got big trouble and quote police come and unfortunately they start their search on the fourth floor and they obviously know that uh you know there's been a burglary so they start to call crime scene fbi etc and finally they get to the basement and poor rick and randy have been sitting there for hours they interview them of course and they give a description of the two men they said they were wearing boston police uniforms and fake mustaches rick would later say that I do have a picture of the sketch, as you can see them. He, la he later said that they were, quote, awful. And he said that one looks like Colonel Clink on Hogan's Heroes. I didn't know who that was. I had to Google it. And it's it's this older, bald dude. I don't know if he meant that one of the actual robbers looked like Colonel Clink or if one of the sketches did i don't know but they said they had on police hats and knee-length coats so it's while they're cleaning this mess up and it's quite a mess the conservators finally noticed later in the afternoon that the napoleonic finial you know the the eagle thing was missing so they they took an inventory of everything that was missing and what they thought their value was and at the time the value of the stolen art was 200 million dollars today it's 500 million the news came out the news was all over it it was calling the 
calling it the art heist of the century, which it was. The Vermeer alone was worth $300 million. And just to give you an idea of like perspective, like, well, you know, how much is that? What's that comparable to? The Mona Lisa, which everybody agrees is the most famous and expensive painting in history, is valued at $867 million. So the Vermeer is eh, almost half that. They discovered that the office to the guard's room was broken down, like physically broken down, like splintered and, you know, there, there's wood, like kicked in or something. And this is probably, I don't know why, I just think it's cool. I was a big, big fan of Nancy Drew when I was a kid and the Hardy Boys too. That's probably why I got interested in crime. And if you don't know anything about those books, I'll just make the point that in every book, I don't, I don't know what it was, they had this thing, they would in, be investigating something and they would always find a secret panel. And I, I grew up thinking, like, my dream is to find a secret panel in something, some haunted house or whatever. Like, my dream house would have a secret panel in it just for, uh, I don't know, my own entertainment because I'm weird like that. But this museum had, I don't know if it's still there or not, but it did have a secret panel. It was in the Dutch room and it's called a secret panel because it's secret, right? <laughs> You're not supposed to know that it's there. Well, it was found ajar and it actually, from what I understand, there were stairs in it that led down to the basement. So keep in mind that a secret panel that nobody's supposed to know about was found open. I'm just going to leave you with that image. And um, obviously this is a two-parter, so I'll see you back here in a little bit.